Part two, chapter four of The Patrician by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part two, chapter four. While Barbara was swimming to meet the dawn, Milton was bathing in those waters of mansuetude and truth which roll from wall to wall in the British House of Commons. In that long debate on the land question, for which he had waited to make his first speech, he had already risen nine times without catching the speaker's eye, and slowly a sense of unreality was creeping over him. Surely this great chamber, where without end rose the small sound of a single human voice, and queer mechanical bursts of approbation and resentment, did not exist at all but as a gigantic fancy of his own. And all these figures were figments of his brain. And when he at last spoke, it would be himself alone that he addressed. The torpid air tainted with human breath, the unwinking stare of the countless lights, the long rows of seats, the queer distant rounds of pale listening flesh perched up so high, they were all emanations of himself. Even the coming and going in the gangway was but the coming and going of little willful parts of him. And rustling deep down in this titanic creature of his fancy was the murmuration of his own unspoken speech sweeping away the puff-balls of words flung up by that far-away, small, varying voice. Then, suddenly all that dream-creature had vanished. He was on his feet, with a thumping heart, speaking. Soon he had no tremors, only a dim consciousness that his words sounded strange, and a queer, icy pleasure in flinging them out into the silence. Round him there seemed no longer men, only mouths and eyes. And he had enjoyment of the feeling that with these words of his he was holding those hungry mouths and eyes dumb and unmoving. Then he knew that he had reached the end of what he had to say, and sat down, remaining motionless in the centre of a various sound, staring at the back of the head in front of him, with his hands clasped round his knee. And soon, when that little faraway voice was once more speaking, he took his hat, and glancing neither to right nor left, went out. Instead of the sensation of relief and wild elation which fills the heart of those who have taken the first plunge, Milton had nothing in his deep dark well but the waters of bitterness. In truth, with the delivery of that speech he had but parted with what had been a sort of anodyne to suffering. He had only put the fine point on his conviction of how vain was his career now that he could not share it with Audrey Nurl. He walked slowly towards the temple, along the riverside, where the lamps were paling into nothingness before that daily celebration of divinity, the meeting of dark and light. The Milton was not one of those who take things lying down. He took things desperately, deeply, and with revolt. He took them like a rider riding himself, plunging at the dig of his own spurs, chafing and wincing at the cruel tugs of his own bit, bearing in his friendless, proud heart all the burden of struggles which shallower or more genial natures shared with others. He looked hardly less haggard walking home than some of those homeless ones who slept nightly by the river, as though they knew that to lie near one who could so readily grant oblivion alone could save them from seeking that consolation. He was perhaps unhappier than they, whose spirits at all events had long ceased to worry them, having oozed out from their bodies under the foot of life. Now that Audrey Nell was lost to him, 
her loveliness and that indescribable quality which made her lovable, floated before him, the very torture-flowers of a beauty never to be grasped, yet that he could grasp if he only would. That was the heart and fervour of his suffering, to be grasped if he only would. He was suffering, too, physically, from a kind of slow fever, the result of his wetting on the day when he last saw her. And through that latent fever, things and feelings, like his sensations in the house before his speech, were all, as it were, muffled in a horrible way, as if they all came to him wrapped in a sort of flannel coating through which he could not cut. And all the time there seemed to be within him two men at mortal grips with one another, the man of faith in divine sanction and authority, on which all his beliefs had hitherto hinged, and a desperate, warm-blooded, hungry creature. He was very miserable, craving strangely for the society of someone who could understand what he was feeling, and from long habit of making no confidence, not knowing how to satisfy that craving. It was dawn when he reached his rooms, and, sure that he would not sleep, he did not even go to bed, but changed his clothes, made himself some coffee, and sat down at the window which overlooked the flowered courtyard. In Middle Temple Hall a ball was still in progress, though the glamour from its Chinese lanterns was already darkened and gone. Milton saw a man and a girl, sheltered by an old fountain, sitting out their last dance. Her head had sunk on her partner's shoulder. Their lips were joined. And there floated up to the window the scent of heliotrope, with the tune of the waltz that these two should have been dancing. This couple, so stealthily enlaced, the gleam of their furtively turned eyes, the whispering of their lips, that stony niche below the twittering sparrows so cunningly sought out, was the world he had abjured. When he looked again, they, like a vision seen, had stolen away and gone. The music too had ceased, there was no scent of heliotrope. In the stony niche crouched a stray cat watching the twittering sparrows. Milton went out, and turning into the empty strand, walked on, without heeding, where, till towards five o'clock, he found himself on Putney Bridge. He rested there, leaning over the parapet, looking down at the grey water. The sun was just breaking through the heat haze. Early wagons were passing, and already men were coming in to work. From what end did the river wander up and down, and a human river flow across it twice every day? To what end were men and women suffering? Of the full current of this life Milton could no more see the aim than of that of the wheeling gulls of the early sunlight. Leaving the bridge he made towards Barnes Common. The night was still ensnared there on the gorse bushes, grey with cobwebs and starry dewdrops. He passed a tramp family still sleeping, huddled all together. Even the homeless lay in each other's arms. From the common he emerged on the road near the gates of Ravensham. Turning him there, he found his way to the kitchen garden, and sat down on a bench close to the raspberry bushes. They were protected from thieves, but at Milton's approach two blackbirds flustered out through the netting and flew away. His lone figure rested so motionless, impressed himself on the eyes of a gardener, who caused a report to be circulated that his young lordship was in the fruit garden. It reached the ears of Clifton, who himself came out to see what this might mean. The old man took his stand in front of Milton very quietly. 
Uh, you've come to breakfast, my lord. If my grandmother will have me, Clifton. I understood your lordship was speaking last night. I was. You find the House of Commons satisfactory, I hope. Fairly, thank you, Clifton. They are not what they were in the great days of your grandfather, I believe. He had a very good opinion of them. They vary, no doubt. Tepera mutanta. That is so. I find quite a new spirit towards public affairs. The Hapney Press, one takes it in, but one hardly approves. I shall be anxious to read your speech. They say a first speech is a great strain. It is, rather. But uh, you had no reason to be anxious. I'm sure it was beautiful. Milton saw that the old man's thin, sallow cheeks had flushed to deep orange between his snow-white whiskers. I have looked forward to this day, he stammered, ever since I, I knew your lordship. Twenty-eight years. It is the beginning. Or the end, Clifton? The old man's face fell in a look of deep and concerned astonishment. No, no, he said, with, with your antecedents, never. Milton shook his hand. Sorry, Clifton, didn't mean to shock you. And for a minute neither spoke, looking at their clasped hands as if surprised. Would your lordship like a bath? Breakfast is still at eight. I can procure you a razor. When Milton entered the breakfast-room, his grandmother, with a copy of the Times in her hands, was seated before a grapefruit, which, with a treaded wheat biscuit, constituted her first meal. Her appearance hardly warranted Barbara's description of terribly well. In truth, she looked a little white, as if she had been feeling the heat. But there was no lack of animation in her little steel-grey eyes, nor of decision in her manner. "'I see,' she said, "'that you've taken a line of your own, Eustace. I've nothing to say against that, in fact, quite the contrary. But remember this, my dear, however you may change, you mustn't wobble. Only one thing counts in that place, hitting the same nail on the head with the same hammer all the time. You aren't looking at all well.' Milton, bending to kiss her, murmured, "'Thanks, I'm all right.' "'Nonsense,' replied Lady Cassidy. "'They don't look after you. Was your mother in the house?' "'I don't think so.' "'Exactly. And what is Barbara about?' She ought to be seeing to you. Barbara is down with Uncle Dennis. Lady Castley set her jaw, then, looking her grandson through and through, said, I shall take you down there this very day. I shall have the sea to you. What do you say, Clifton? His lordship does look pale. Have the carriage, and we'll go from Clapham Junction. Thomas can go in and fetch you some clothes. Or better, though I dislike them, we can telephone to your mother for a car. It's very hot for trains. Arrange that, please, Clifton. To this project Milton raised no objection, and all through the drive he remained sunk in an indifference and lassitude which to Lady Castley seemed in the highest degree ominous. For lassitude to her was the strange, the unpardonable state. The little great lady, casket of the aristocratic principle, was permeated to the very backbone with the instinct of artificial energy of that alert vigour which those who have nothing socially to hope for are forced to develop, lest they should decay and be again obliged to hope. To speak honest truth, she could not forbear an itch to run some sharp and foreign substance into her grandson to rouse him somehow, for she knew the reason of his state, and was temperamentally out of patience with such a cause for backsliding. 
Had it been any other of her grandchildren, she would not have hesitated. But there was that in Milton which held even Lady Casterly in check. And only once during the four hours of travel did she attempt to break down his reserve. She did it in a manner very soft for her. Was he not of all living things the hope and pride of her heart? Tucking her little thin, sharp hand under his arm, she said quietly, "'My dear, don't brood over it. That will never do.' But Milton removed her hand gently, and laid it back on the dust-rug, nor did he answer or show other sign of having heard. And Lady Cassily, deeply wounded, pressed her faded lips together, and said sharply, "'Slower, please, Frith!' End of Part 2 Chapter 4